Welcome back, everyone. Our next speaker is Martin O'Neill, who was also in the room the first time Wahid asked me a question oh, I would not answer. Oh, and, uh, and his title is Community, Solidarity, and the Sense of Justice. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Arthur. As I've got older now, I'm having to wear different glasses to see my computer, which maybe it's better. No, I'll do that and not see my computer and see your... Instead, you so, can read what's on your computer oh, by looking at the screen. So it, it's, I mean, it, it's it's a lovely honour, really, to be to be here. Um, I, uh, when I arrived at, at Harvard as a grad student in uh, in 1999, which seems like quite a long time ago now, where he just seemed like this sort of this established, older, wise presence within the the department. And as Louis Philippe has very accurately. Um, recounted kind of dealing with Wahid in terms of arguing figuring stuff out together it was like a bracing bracing experience and one that I think it took me a little while being you know sort of reserved person from the rainy island in the North Atlantic I wasn't quite used to this level of sort of uh of, of robustness um in some ways so uh, the, the wonderful, the wonderful thing was he very quickly saw with Wahid that the motivation was all about just being there and the shared, important, essential project together, figuring stuff out. <coughs> figuring stuff out was difficult, and that meant just trying to really get down to it and not mucking around, not just sort of being polite, but trying to really get down to things. So whenever I, whenever I think about sort of arguments with. Uh, well, discussions with Wahid, what I always imagine him saying to me is, is saying, the thing about you, O'Neill, is <laughs> X, where X would be some, you know, bad intellectual habit, <laughs> vice of bad thinking, you know, kind of, and yeah, and I, I, I miss him enormously, um, and um, it's lovely, nevertheless, to be here talking about his book and, and huge respect to, to Nicholas and to Arthur for, for shepherding the book into the world. You've done us all a great, a great service. Um, the cover of the book, I don't know, Tina, if you remember that we, we had lunch in Berlin uh, with Wahid at the end of a, an economic ethics conference. And uh, you guys went off to see the, the Reichstag after, um, after lunch. So I, I, I was sort of, I was really moved to see the cover and to think that, you know, when he was last there, I just had a meal with him and a, a lovely chat with him in a, you know, in a, in a random foreign city and had sort of, you know, had left that lunch thinking, right, there's going to be an infinite number of these <laughs> stretching off into the future in random places where we meet up and... and um, um, and I just wish them there. I wish there were. So um, I'm going to do now what how philosophers actually uh, pay tribute uh, to each other, which is I'm going to now say why I think he's wrong about all sorts of things and, and where I uh, would disagree with him and um, would, will try, as it were, to, to say things that would have generated uh, where he's saying the thing about you, O'Neill, is you don't get the, this or that. So I'm, I'm doing something, I think, a little bit too ambitious, and I won't manage it very well, but um, but that's okay. Uh, I'm, 
I'm among friends, so we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Which is what I want to try and do is to kind of take this book and read it against some other recent writing by, by Wahid. So I want to read, um, try and think about some of the ideas in this book against what he said um, about reciprocity and the sense of justice in a book that I co-edited with Fab Williamson on uh, uh, property and democracy and against what Wahid said in, I'm guessing, although I'll have to ask people who know better than I do, that Wahid's wonderful article pitting people against each other, I'm assuming was written after most of the material in this book. So in a way, uh, Wahid's 2020 paper, I'm assuming, was, was, was kind of representing where his thinking uh, was kind of quite, quite recently. So I, I want to kind of read this a bit um, against those books. So they're, they're, those are the three things that I'm trying to piece together. So in Living with the Invisible Hand, um, the argument, as we've heard today, is that an intermediated market economy can deliver on reason, sensitivity, transparency, and trustworthiness, and can create a justifiable form of market economy, consistent with the Kantian idea of mutual respect. Um, the argument of Wahid's 2012 paper, Nurturing the Sense of Justice, um, is about the idea of reciprocity in creating conditions for the stability of a just society, a just economy, through generating a, a widely shared sense of justice. And the Wahid's late paper, Pitting People Against Each Other, is about the assessment of economic systems and how they can be unjustifiable when they create estrangement between citizens through structuring forms of competition that undermine community and solidarity. So my puzzle is, can all of these things fit together or not? Or how, how can we read the book um, in light of, of those? So what I, I want to start with is, is to go back to Wahid's arguments about reciprocity and nurturing the sense of justice in this um, handsome volume still available from all good bookshops. <laughs> price. So Wahid's account of reciprocity and the sense of justice is presented there in the context of his defense of a particular interpretation of Rawls's idea of a property-only democracy. So for those not, um, not sort of deep into all this stuff, a property-only democracy is a kind of egalitarian private property market economy with a very broad dispersal of ownership of productive capital. So in this article, Wahid defends a form of what he calls democratic corporatist uh, pod, property and democracy, over an alternative, what he takes to be the kind of, I suppose, the sort of vanilla version of pod, a liberal market property and democracy. So the democratic corporatist pod, I think, has a lot in common with the form of intermediated market economy defended in living with the uh, invisible hand, albeit that the former might has more emphasis on, on an egalitarian distribution. But I think in terms of the, the structure of intermediation through secondary institutions, that's common between the two. But one thing that struck me rereading the 2012 argument is whether there are the resources in that view for the defense of what would be a less market-based economic regime than the regime defended in the recent book. So the basic argument of the 2012 paper is that a just social arrangement has to be stable for the right reasons. Stability for the right reasons requires that citizens internalize the shared sense of justice that leads them to support and uphold just institutions over time. 
that just institutions should appeal to citizens as both rational and reasonable, right? Their affiliation to just institutions shouldn't be merely strategic. You shouldn't be doing it just because it's in your interest, but because it accords with your sense of justice. So on Wahid's view, participation <coughs> in the kind of secondary associations involved in democratic corporatism is part of what allows citizens to develop that shared sense of justice, right? So he thinks that if we have people who don't have that kind of day-to-day -day engagement in the broader kind of governance of the institutions of which they're part, it's not going to be plausible to have that kind of adherence and affiliation um, to the regime that they're within. I mean, I guess this picks up on, on the theme of alienation that Kiara was talking about. So in a way, being able to endorse the, uh, the system in which you're living will depend on uh, these forms of participation in intermediary institutions. But it's striking, I think, that although when Wahid talks about the kind of institutional structure that he takes to be justified um, when he talks about intermediate, uh, an intermediated market economy as a form of kind of corporatist co-determination, He's not actually that optimistic about really existing forms of intermediated capitalism as exist under Rhinish or Nordic uh, forms of co-determination. He thinks that those in the real world don't do enough to engage citizens sufficiently to meet this aim of generating a shared sense of justice. So he says there in the article, democratic corporatism is a normative model of economic governance in that it does not simply describe the pattern of social coordination that we see in certain societies. It's not sort of ostensibly defined by pointing towards German or Nordic arrangements. Even European countries that have certain elements of democratic corporatism built into their institutional framework seem to lack an adequate degree of deliberation. Democratism is an ideal that we should strive for, an idea that's partly, partly realized in existing institutions, but by no means identical with them. So whatever it is he has in mind, it kind of, it goes beyond, um, it goes beyond what we actually see in, in terms of actually existing, co-determination, whatever. So this raises the question of how different the economic regime that Wahid envisaged would be from actually existing forms of co-determination. Now, uh, Wahid follows Rawls's account of the development of the sense of justice, according to which reciprocity is the central engine of normative attachment. It's experiences of reciprocity that kind of bring us towards this sense of, um, of, of affiliation with principles of justice. So the sense of attachment and affiliation moves on this account from immediate context, such as the family, to secondary associations, and then on to the morality of principles involved in affiliation with justice as such. So participation in forms of public deliberation in the political life of the community allows us to ascend through these levels on this view, through these levels of development of the sense of justice. So that's the, the picture. And, and maybe that's not emphasized. I guess both the book and that earlier article both emphasize the role of these secondary associations but um, and, and i think this picks up on something that andrew was mentioning earlier the sense in which participation is significant here as well i think is brought out more in the discussion of these sorts of intermediate institutions in the context of uh, this kind of corporatist form of property owned democracy 
But here's where I then started to um, wonder a bit about this story. So, <clears throat> so whenever it says but in uh, uh, highlighted in red, this is this is you know this is me trying to uh, trying to um, uh, this would be like me trying to trying to get a, a word in edgewise and, and to say hang on wait but. I think we could have reason to accept the centrality of reciprocity while being skeptical about aspects of this story about the special role of participation in intermediate uh, institutions. So compare that story about participation with some other things that Wahid says about um, the mechanisms of reciprocity for kind of generating a sense of justice. So one thing he says is that the focus of his argument has been on expanding the public sphere, right? And the thought is that the kind of co-determinative institutions are one way of doing that, but they're only one way. And then, and I take it this is a sympathetic, when he's talking here about Rawls's view, he's also aligning himself with it, I think. He says, on Rawls's view, society nurtures the sense of justice by putting people in a position where they can appreciate how the social order embodies a caring concern for their interests and the interests of the people that they care about. So, that, so that's two things. That, so if you want to build a sense of reciprocity, create the preconditions for a well-functioning sense of justice, you need a society that's good at expressing care and concern, and you need an expansive public sphere. Um, so I wonder whether there are, uh, the materials there in Wahid's Rawlsian dis discussion of reciprocity and the sense of justice to carry us then to a somewhat different conclusion on how societies might best generate that. So care and concerns for citizens and for those they care about suggest the need for a kind of flourishing domain of non-market provision, right? Healthcare, education, lifelong training, preschool provision, these sorts of things. It suggests that an important way to build a sense of justice <coughs> is not only to increase participation in corporatist institutions, but to situate people in secure relations of care and support uh, from the states. What I have, this is a slightly forlorn graphic from the um, the opening of the 2012 Olympics, where um, before its most recent periods of uh, decline, my country was sort of thinking out loud about, and about the sort of centrality of universal <coughs> provision of NHS in, in the sort of, in the country's center itself. Um, so one, that, there's that idea of kind of institutions that display kind of reciprocal concern. Secondly, there's that idea of expanding the public sphere. So it might be there that there's a need to increase engagement and, and participation in the shared life of citizens, maybe not only in the economic sphere, that could include thinking about forms of democratic subsidiarity, expansion of public spaces, it could be about democratic education in schools, it could be about reducing the voting age, there could be lots of things that, 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 um, uh, that a society looks to do to have that idea of a kind of expansive public sphere. And it might seem odd to alight in particular on corporatist institutions as uh, just one way among others. So that account of reciprocity might give us reason to think that a stable justice society would be one with an expansive, significant non-market sphere. It pushes us not only towards wanting to humanize the market from the inside, as happens there in, in, that, in his book, but also towards thinking about ways of limiting the scope and significance of market exchange within society, which is a theme that then is very much in the center of Wahid's 2020 
paper. So, in pitting people against each other, well, he looks to bring the value of community into the assessment of institutional morality. So he presents what he calls the estrangement accounts. As I'll say in a minute, I don't know why he calls it that. But it says, political morality requires that background institutions in a liberal democracy must respect the requirements of the civic relationship, such that a properly ordered scheme of background institutions must keep its competitive character within the limits appropriate to a solidaristic partnership among citizens. So, Wahid's own example here, healthcare. Healthcare should not be tied to employment status in a competitive labour market. Otherwise, citizens could effectively pose an active threat to one another's basic healthcare coverage and hence to each other's lives. Now, I, I'm really puzzled. Why does he call it the estrangement account? It's about avoiding estrangement between citizens. So marketing-wise, it seems more natural, and what I'm going to just arbitrarily do, and I'm sure I'd get told off for this, I'm going to call it by what I think of it. I'm going to call it the solidarity account, right? It's about overcoming estrangement. And, you know, the point of that 2020 article is to, you know, provide arguable support, this solidarity um, account. Now, uh, those of you who've read this article, so this is a, a bit of a whistle-stop tour of necessity, uh, Wahid is interested in what he calls rivalry-defining arrangements, right? This kind of institutional forms that pit people against each other. But he's especially interested in rivalry-defining arrangements which are substantially engulfing, right? Which determine access to important goods and which are not easy to exit from or, or to dissolve. So clearly the basic structure of society in Rawls's terms, including the main features of the economic system, um, counters substantially engulfing. If anything is substantially engulfing, those are substantially engulfing. So when Wahid discusses the salient aspects of the basic structure, he emphasizes that this includes not only the structure and rules of market exchange, right, but also the system of background non-market public provision in the society. So his list there includes not only fundamental basics such as water, sanitation, the road system, but also includes sports and recreation facilities, libraries, parks and public spaces, retirement income, information about current events such as uh, institutions like the BBC, statistical data, scientific knowledge, etc. So there's a thought that there's a big market sphere, so there's the, a big non-market sphere here as well, right, um, alongside what's going on in the, the market economy. So it seems to me that it's not difficult to see why the solidarity account would mandate non-market provision of that kind of expansive range of goods and services. As by the lights of, of, the, um, of the solidarity account, the estrangement account, it's unacceptable to have high stakes rivalry for access to particularly significant goods and services. Right. So it's fine. You know, we're rivals. I want to, you know, have a, a, a nicer car than you or you want a better holiday. And, you know, we and we compete in the market for that. But it's not OK. It's not fine if our market competition is going to um, is going to structure our access to this rather expansive list of fundamental goods. OK. Um. In that article, there's a, a, this passage, which absolutely knocked me sideways when I read it as a, as a parent. And I think this feeling must strike parents in lots of places, but you know, certainly in the US, Canada, 
in the UK. So, and this is so vivid and real that so what Wahid says here. He says, given the rivalry defining character of background institutions, citizens in a liberal in a liberal democracy have significant reasons to act with disregard for one another. When I take my daughter to the local park, I'm often aware that the other parents are diligently hiring tutors and saving money to help their kids go to better high schools and colleges and eventually beat my daughter or anyone else out for a decent job. And I will have to do some of the same things to help my daughter eventually to beat these kids or anyone else out for a decent job. We may not know all of the other individuals involved, people in distant cities and towns, but given the character of our background institutions, we must act with disregard for all of these individuals, abstractly conceived, and if we don't, we'll get pushed into the dirt ourselves, right? That's, it's spot on, isn't it? And it's horrible. There you are, you're in the park, it's a sunny day, your kid's on the swing, it should be lovely, right? There and looming behind you is the horror that we've, that we've constructed, that we've sort of imprisoned ourselves in, where actually how these lives are going to go is this horrible, nasty kind of hunger games. Nonsense. And it doesn't have to be like that. We could have had it differently. And we've not figured out yet how to do that. It's a powerful thought. This wonderful passage, I think, gets to the heart of the way in which an unjustifiable economic system can distort our relationship to one another. Our economic institutions prevent us standing in relations of solidarity with one another, both with the physical actual people there in the park and the abstract others in other parks elsewhere. So what would the society look like that, over, that overcame some of these pathologies? Now, Wahid's own answer, like two examples from the, the article, he has this, he imagines a different approach to higher education a state-funded, less competitive system of higher education where access to higher education institutions, it's more like passing a driving test, right? You kind of, you, you, you meet the requirement and then you go to the local one or you go wherever where we get rid of all this, you know, this kind of pyramid of, of competition. And then again, he comes back to the significance of free universal healthcare. Okay, so the view in nurturing, in nurturing the sense of justice, justified solidaristic non-market institutions by their capacity to instantiate forms of reciprocity, right, that then develop citizens' self-sense of justice, which is required for stability for the right reasons. So that's quite a, that, that, that's a more sort of roundabout justification, right? But the argument of pitting people against each other justifies these sorts of solidaristic non-market institutions much, much more directly. But obviously, the two lines of argument fit together well with the 2020, with the 2012 paper, in a way, buttressing the conclusions, the, you know, the more direct argument of the solidarity account from 2020, right? It's giving you um, a sort of extra set of reasons to think, you know, not only should we be assessing our shared institutions in virtue of whether they facilitate or undermine the capacity of relating towards each other in this solidaristic way. But we also need to think about the institutional infrastructure that you need for that kind of ongoing set of relations of reciprocity that are then the preconditions for a, a sense of justice, which you then need for stability of a, of a just system for the right reasons. So everything's points, well, everything in these two articles is pointing towards, um, you know, not in grand Heathian terms, the battle between 
you know, capitalism, big C, socialism, big S, right? But just thinking, no, no, these are like mixed economies. But this is pointing towards a kind of society with a much bigger non-market sphere, with meaningful, significant institutions that, that decommodify, right? That pull certain kinds of goods out of market exchange, but then, you know, there's still consumer markets, there's still, you know, we're, we're not, this isn't a battle of, of you know, these sorts of, um, these broader, um, these kind of broader um, uh, headings. Okay, so, I, so I'm claiming, you know, this sort of, you know, sort of radical social democratic uh, Wahid position from these two articles. How does it fit with the argument of this book that's putting a lot of weight on co-determination per se, like human, you know, but this is about humanizing the market economy from the inside rather than thinking about constraining the market economy within a broader uh, setting. So on the view in Living with the Invisible Hand, Wahid makes, as we've heard, a powerful case for the virtues of advanced market economies, while also showing the advantages of an intermediated market arrangement with these two features. So it has a limited number of secondary associations to represent the perspectives of major segments of the population in various rulemaking forums. And it has a process of deliberation and reasoned agreement among the relevant associations in appropriately situated rulemaking forums. <clears throat> now, I think we could have good reason to accept Wahid's central argument in showing you know, some of the norms of Anglo-American capitalism. And, you know, the case there might be overdetermined, the compensation or, you know, the, the division of, of, uh, of the surplus between capital and labor, or, you know, you know there might be, there might be, a few, there might be a few uh, ways in which we think that's better. But, and here's where, um, where I'm less sure, Corporatist co-determination does not allow firms to escape the pressures of capitalist competition. I mean, again, I guess this was a, a point that Joe was making. People are still pitted against each other in many respects. And there are, and here also, I think there's tensions between some of the, some of the best advantages of high-level corporatist co-determination. So where, where you get, like, so if you think of like the German system, if you have like industry-wide um, regulation on sort of uh, wage standards or on um, uh, working conditions or whatever it is, this is often about sort of pushing, um, pushing deliberation up, right? So it's about having maybe a kind of elite of union officials that are engaging with, you know, the, the senior management of, within various industries. And that's going to be quite different to what you might want from these secondary institutions if your concern instead is about that route through the significance of participation. If it's about participation and engagement, then it might be that your day-to-day -day kind of shop floor local kind of union activity is much more significant. But if you're thinking about the kind of more structural gains from co-determination, it might be that a different model is So it's not completely clear that the different goods that you want from co-determination all go, go together. So back to the puzzle that I started with. Do these different elements of Wahid's argument fit together, or do they stand in tension? And if it's the latter, how do we resolve that? 
So I've suggested that both 20, the 2012 and 2020 views fit together pretty well. And both also buttress the case for forms of co-determination as one way, to, one way to foster greater participation and deliberation in economic life. And somewhat to reduce inequalities of power and authority in economic life, and therefore somewhat to reduce the stakes of economic competition. But the argument of that, those two articles should also lead us towards, I've suggested, endorsing an economic system that involves decommodification of certain significant goods, such as healthcare, education, uh, for, you know, two striking examples, and which reduces, therefore, the scope of the market. So that part of Wahid's work supports an economic system that decenters market relationships. There's still markets in all sorts of areas, but some of the more um, fundamental aspects of, um, of the provision of, of fundamental goods are going to be provided by non-market institutions. So here's, here's then two readings of, of the argument of this book in light of that view. So the compatibilist reason says, the, the compatibilist reading says, living with the invisible hand just gives you an account of the features that markets have to have if they're to be consistent with Kantian respect between citizens. So the argument is kind of conditional. It just says that where we employ markets, those markets should be intermediated. And that's consistent with decentering markets within the overall economic um, organization of society. But then there's an incompatibilist reading as well. On the, incompat in the, on the incompatibilist reading, living with the invisible hand gives a strong defense of the market system in terms of efficiency and its contribution to human flourishing. It defends an advanced market economy that puts market activity at the center of our shared economic lives but then it shows why that system nevertheless needs to be intermediated by these secondary institutions. That view is inconsistent with the kind of decentering that I've argued for from materials from the other parts of, of Wahid's um, work. So, as a reading of living with the invisible hands, I think B, I think the way this reads is the incompatibilist version, right? I think, you know, there's, there's, and again, this goes back to what Joe was just saying. So, you know, most, most political philosophers don't take fully seriously the lessons of Hayek and Coase, but where he does, right? And, you know, there's very much that sense that in this book, the, you know, the, the virtues of, of market coordination are at the center of, of things. So I think reading the book, it feels to me as if, it fits only with that incompatibilist reading. But the view that I think is would be more plausible would be the compatibilist reading, would be A. Because I think there is a compelling case made in these other articles for having this large non-market spirit. <coughs> so um, I'll come towards the end of what I want to say here. Um, so I was thinking about how, in different ways, Wahid, Wahid's thinking was always very radical. He always, whenever I talked to him about anything, it always felt like I was sort of thrown in in the middle of things, and he was always starting three or four steps further back. Right? I think he had much more of a philosophical temperament than I do. Right? So he was always um, he was always trying to get to the the fundamental underlying issues, and you know we've all you can see that in in the book, right? 
So one of the many respects in which I always admired Wahid as a political philosopher was that determination to get to the root of problems, right? And, you know, radical comes from this Latin word um, in roots, right? He was always prepared to do the difficult work of thinking through the fundamental, fundamental aspects of questions of value as they relate to economic institutions and economic life. So he was always a radical thinker, always get, trying to dig right at the roots of big, big problems, as, as uh, LP was saying earlier. But in terms of the substantive content, I think we've got a we've got a tricky, challenging, strange puzzle here to kind of work through uh, collectively. So it seems to me that living with the invisible hand, it's a radical re-examination of these conceptual and normative issues related to markets and corporations, human freedom, that reaches in the end a kind of ameliorative political conclusion. It suggests that we can solve the problems with which it deals just by a shift to a somewhat different version of a familiar kind of economic system, right? So it's not exactly, you know, taking seriously that, that passage in the 2012 paper, you know, it's not just kind of actually existing Rhinish capitalism, but it's just, you know, a kind of more, a more German, less Anglo-American form of capitalism could be, you know, kind of uh, the kind of, you know, the best accessible system for us. But I think when, when we read the kind of broader corpus of Wade's work, um, we're, we're actually brought towards really a much, more a much more radical set of political conclusions. So the world envisaged in nurturing the sense of justice to some degree, but especially the world envisaged in pitting people against each other, the world demanded if we're going to satisfy the solidarity account is much, much further from what currently exists than the kind of intermediated market arrangements defended in, in that book. So, Wahid said in the 2020 article, um, as if to, you know, just head me off here and say, you know, people like O'Neill might misread this, but, you know, <laughs> but the thing about O'Neill is, he said, look, the point of this argument is not to motivate some form of socialism, but rather it's to articulate the moral appeal of social democratic policies that moderate the competitive character of social life and to show that the moral appeal of these policies is not fundamentally tied to equality, whether distributive or relational. Now, I've not even, I think he's wrong about equality, but I mean, we can talk about this in here. I'm not going to say anything about that. There's, that's another story, I think, on a suitably expansive idea <coughs> relational equality, it is about equality. But anyway, let's, I'll put that in the box. That's, that's a different thing. More importantly, though, I think even if that article wasn't intended, if, if, even if the goal of it wasn't to motivate some form of socialism, what it does is motivate some form of socialism, right? If you read the ideas, that's where it goes to. Right? Or, you know, not big S socialism, maybe in in the sort that, um, of the kind that, um, that Joe Heath was just talking about, but nevertheless, a very different kind of economic system, which decenters the market and where an awful lot more, I mean, going back to Chiara's um, uh, sort of, you know, three-point characterization of capitalism this morning, you know, where you think, well, where are most resources held, where, where the investment decisions get made, I forget what the third one was, but, you know, we're envisaging the kind of society that actually decommodifies all of those important goods that Wahid identified is one where an awful lot more economic activity is happening in the non-market sphere. 
So call it radical social democracy, call it democratic socialism, call it whatever, it doesn't look like a familiar kind of advanced market uh, economy of the kind defended in, in that book. So I suspect that the argumentative resources of Wade's work are going to be of great value in the years ahead um, to people interested in, in trying to articulate the, the appeal of democratic socialist alternatives um, you know, to the kind of, the kind of market um, societies that, that are familiar to us. And I'm constantly, you know, in thinking that, I'm constantly drawn back to Wahid's image of taking the kids to the park, right? Of thinking that we've let them down. We've brought them into a world where their relationship to others is so disfigured by this dismal form of ultra-competitiveness, right? We could do better. We could put them in a more livable, more human set of relations with each other by changing certain features of our overall social arrangements. So Wahid's work, I think, is charged with the sense that with sufficient intellectual and political imagination, we'll be able to find better ways to structure our societies and find better ways to live together uh, within them. So I'll stop there and look forward to discussing. Thanks so much, Martin.